down. Uh, in fact, what we discover is that the, the next five chapters in John actually cover a single uh, dinner gathering. Uh, the next five chapters happen uh, in the same context, where Jesus is sitting with his closest friends around a table at dinner, and he is giving them some important final uh, teaching before he leaves them. He gives them some uh, important final instructions. Now, if I had been better in my planning of this series, uh, we would have been in these chapters like the, a few, a few um, you know, a month ago so that the timing of things would, be, would all naturally lead in the run-up to Easter and we would you know, hit uh, chapter 20, uh, the, the account of the resurrection, on Easter Sunday. Uh, but I didn't plan so well, uh, so we're not. And, and so this is what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to begin uh, uh, to look at this dinner gathering this morning, and then we're going to uh, press pause on the rest of these uh, chapters through chapter 17 until after Easter, and then we'll come back to them uh, at that time. And then next week, we'll jump ahead uh, to John 18 as we, as we move towards Easter. So that's going to be our plan. Again, I wish I would have planned this better, but uh, unfortunately, uh, I didn't. And so if you have your Bible with you, uh, if you would, please turn it open to John uh, 13, chapter 13. You'll also find this morning's uh, passage printed on page 8 of your worship guide. And, and the first two sentences of John 13 are kind of wordy, but they're really important wordy. Uh, they, they, they give the context for the entire uh, dinner gathering, the context for these five chapters. And, and so we're going to take a little bit of time working through the first two sentences of this passage before we kind of speed through uh, the rest of it. So here we go. This is John 13, verse 1. The Apostle John writes this. He, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, we have this tendency, uh, I think, with Jesus to over or underemphasize different parts of his life and ministry depending upon who we are and, and, what, and what we tend to, 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 to think about, right? So, for instance, some of us love certain teachings even more th than others. So, for instance, last week in John 12, we heard this great statement where Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And, and we're like, yes, I love that sentence, but then the very next sentence, he said, because if you don't believe in me, you are already judged in your sin. And we're like, well, I don't like that one, right? Or earlier in John, when, when, John, or, uh, when Jesus interacted with the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and all the people trying to accuse her and condemn her, and he kind of called them out on that. And then, and then he says, where are all your accusers? And she said, they're gone, and, and, and he says, well, no, one, no one's here to condemn you. I don't condemn you either, and we're like, I love that. And then Jesus says to her, now go and sin no more. Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead, and we love that, but he didn't heal all the sick. He didn't heal all, it didn't raise all the dead. And sometimes we get angry at God when he doesn't do these things, when he doesn't heal someone who is sick, 
when someone who dies just remains, remains dead. And interesting enough, what, what John does in, in, in John 13, verse 1, is he puts all of that into, the context, into context for us as he gives us the motivation that Jesus had through his ministry and the motivation he had going into these last seven days as he moved himself inexorably towards the cross where he was where he would die for the sins of the world, be buried, raised again, and ascend into heaven. And he sets it all up this way by saying this, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this world to the Father. So what is that saying? Well, it's saying that Jesus knew what was about to happen. Jesus knew. Now, there's some debate as to at what point Jesus, who, who was born as a, a newborn infant into this world and then who grew up as a toddler and then through childhood into adolescence and then in adulthood, the question arises to when he consciously knew that he was God. At what point he knew that he was the, uh, the, the Savior? At what point he knew that he was the Messiah? And you can get into a, a big debate about all of that, but there's no debate at thi- that at this point he did know. That at this point Jesus knew who he was, he knew what he was doing, and he knew he was heading to the cross for the sins of the world. He knew what was about to take place, and he was in this final chapter, that he was in this final chapter of walking here on earth before going back to the Father. He knew this. And it says, having loved his own who were in the world. And that little sentence fragment, I mean, we could preach on that for a month. Having loved his own who were in the world. What does that that imply? Well, it implies, first of all, that Jesus knows who his people are. He knows his own. We saw this back when he talked about himself as the good shepherd, that he knows his sheep, and his sheep know him, and they know his voice, and he knows them, right? And, and so he, he knows who the people are who will follow him, those who will have faith in him, those who will, he will draw to himself through the Holy Spirit. He knows who they are. At the table, here at dinner, he knew who were his own were. He, when he would go into the, into the temple, he would know who his own were there. And not only did he know them, but it says that Jesus loved his own. Now, there's a broad sense in which Jesus loves. I, I mean, it says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we know that there's this broad benevolent love that God has for his whole creation, for the whole world. But there's also a particular, special, narrow, intense love that Jesus has for his own, for those who believe, for those who have faith in him. And it says he loved them right through to the end. And I don't believe that he, he, he means here, you know, just a, a dogged see-it-through see kind of love, that what Jesus did consistently through his life and ministry, he just kept being consistent all the way to the end, though, 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 though there certainly is that. But I believe that what, he's also, what is also being conveyed here is that he loved them to the uttermost. That is, that there was nothing that love could do for them that he did not now do. And so check this out, verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing 
that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So right in the middle of dinner, Jesus does what mom always tells you not to do. He gets up from the dinner table. He gets up from the table. Now, now why? Why during this dinner did Jesus get up from the table? Well, John tells us in these verses three realities that Jesus knew that caused him to pop up from the dinner table. The first thing Jesus knew was that the, was he knew that the devil had already put it into Judas's heart to betray him. Judas is the one that will go on to betray Jesus, and we're going to cover that more next time. But the the devil is real, the devil, and the devil put it into Judas' heart to betray Jesus, and Jesus knew it. The second thing Jesus knew was, as it says, that God the Father had given him all authority. And that means that every single thing that was going to happen in the next seven to nine days was going to happen under his authority. What happened at this dinner table? What happened in his betrayal? What happened in his trial and, and in his crucifixion and in his resurrection? Everything that is about to happen is under his authority. And the third thing that Jesus knew was that, that, that he had come from God the Father and that he was going back to God the Father. And we saw in the previous chapter how Jesus had, had, had seen this moment dawning, the moment of which all of his ministry so far had been preparing. These events were about to unfold, which formed for him, as it were, this ladder from this world to the Father's world. They, they are the way home that the Son of God must take. And so let me put that all together in one statement. Jesus came from the Father, was given all authority from the Father, knew that the devil had put it into Judas to betray him, and that that betrayal would kick off the events that would cause Jesus to go back to the Father. And Jesus knew all of that, and that's what caused him to jump up from the table in the middle of dinner. What is he doing? He is launching the sequence of events that is going to lead to his crucifixion right in this moment. Now, I want you to think about how you would launch the inauguration of this last week and hold that thought in your head as you hear how Jesus launched into this final week. Verse 4, he laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And when he poured water and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. I want to be really cl clear on something as we get into this. I don't want to have anything to do with your feet. Like, I'm totally serious. I don't want to see your feet. I don't want to touch your feet. I don't want to think about your feet. I don't care if they're clean. I don't care if you get a regular pedicure. I want nothing to do with your feet. And Jesus' disciples here did not have clean and pedicured feet. Jesus' disciples wore sandals every day. And they walked on streets that were not paved. They were dirty and grimy. And when it rained, it turned to mud. And other things traveled on the street like donkeys. And, and, and you know what donkeys do? Well, they leave stuff behind on the street, right? And so these people walked in sandals in streets covered with dung from animals and full of dust that stirred up by fellow travelers. Feet in these days 
were, were not a pretty sight. Now, growing up as I did in a civilized country before moving here, it, it took me a while. <laughs> it took me a while to adjust uh, to wearing shoes in the house. Because growing up, you, you didn't. Um, you knew when you came into someone's house that you were expected to take off your shoes. It was the polite thing. And, and so by the door, they'd, ha- you know, they'd have a little mat or rug or something with some shoes on it to give you the clue, take off your shoes. Well, in the first century, they, they wouldn't have that. What they would do instead was if, if, if you were to be polite, you'd have a basin of water and a, and a stack of towels so that you can wash your own dang feet. So that nobody would have to touch your feet or think about your, your feet in their house. The polite thing would be, what it would be to do would be to provide that. And the polite thing for you would be to clean your own feet. That's, and that's how it worked. In fact, in fact, some of the rabbis said that it was such a disgusting job to wash people's feet because of how gross they were in that day. It was so demeaning that you couldn't make a Jewish servant wash your feet. Now, you could have a Gentile servant do it, but that's another thing. But, but you couldn't let a Jewish servant wash your feet. So literally, there is no conceivable way any rabbi had ever washed his students' feet. There's no conceivable way that any master had ever washed his servants' feet. And Jesus strips off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, and he takes their skanky, smelly, manure-infested feet into his hands. We are marching deeper and deeper into the shadow of the cross. Everything from this point on is leading directly to that moment when Jesus would be suspended on that cursed tree for our sakes. And so for him to stop in the middle of that journey to wash the, the, the feet of his disciples is startling. And we should give significant reflection and imagination to picturing those hands that flung the stars into outer space now grappling with the corns on the disciples' feet. Wiping off the, the droppings of some goat, wiping away some filth, and then when all is clean, just carefully wiping the feet dry. This is the Lord of creation, the one who simply speaks and universes are created from nothing. With one word from him, from his mouth, and Saturn with all of its rings bursts forth. What is he doing rubbing these guys' toes? I mean, what other... What other religious leader has ever done this? There's, there's no comparable story in, 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 in Muhammad or Buddha. This is, but this Jesus is, is the God of love, and he, and he has come to serve and now begins to show the full extent of his love. And can you just imagine the surprised look on these disciples' faces as Jesus takes on the mantle of, of the lowest of servants? And Peter has the correct response. Verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? Let me put that into American. What the heck are you doing, Jesus? Why are you touching my feet? Right? And that, that's a really, really good question. 
But we know why Jesus was touching his feet. He just told us. Remember, he was having dinner, and then something caused him to jump up from dinner and do this. What caused him to jump up and do this? Well, the reality that he knew that he had come from his father on a mission, that he had been given all authority, that everything that was about to take place was going to happen under his authority, and he was going to kick off this series of events that was going to lead him going back to the father after dying on the cross. And so the God of the universe, on a mission to save the world, his first step that night was to get down on his knees and wash these skanky feet, including Judas's. And the appropriate response is, what the heck are you doing, Jesus? Why are you doing this? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. In other words, you think I'm washing feet. I'm not washing feet. I'm doing something else. And Peter said, no, no, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What did Jesus just say? You don't understand what I'm doing. I'm not washing feet. Peter says, don't touch my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, not your feet, you. Jesus is up to something here. And Peter's response shows that he still doesn't get it. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and, and, my, hands and my head. Hey, hey, if, if washing my feet gives me a little bit of Jesus, I'll take all of it. Just wash my hands, wash my head, all of it. But Jesus points to the meaning of this event by replying, you don't realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand, he says. And indeed, later, when the disciples see Jesus dying on the cross, and when the Spirit reveals to them the meaning of the cross, they will finally understand that they worship a crucified Messiah, a serving Lord, a loving and humble God. But for now, Peter doesn't, doesn't understand. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But is complete, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. What does that mean? Well, it's actually pretty straightforward. Jesus is saying, you know, you take a shower, you get out of the shower, you dry yourself off. You don't have to walk over the sink to wash your hands, Right? Because you're clean. When, when you're clean, you're clean. Jesus was simply saying, if you are washed, if you are clean, well, you are clean. What is he getting at? Well, John would later get this because he, he, he put this in, in 1 John 1, a letter that he would write later on. He said, these are famous words, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, when we see what Scripture calls sin and say, you know what, I know the Bible says that that's sin, but I don't, but I don't think it's sin. I'm not actually sinning in this. Then what he's saying, then what we are saying is that Jesus is a liar and Jesus is fundamentally unloving. A part of following Jesus is accepting the truth that Jesus pre presents, even if it makes us uncomfortable. And, and so what this verse is saying, when, when we get to that point where we realize, yes, I really have made a, a mess of my life, 
Well, we confess that, and confession just means to agree. We just agree with Jesus. We say, yes, Jesus, you're right about how I have made a mess of my life. And we confess that. We agree with him. And what does it say he will do? Well, it says he is faithful, and that he is just, and he will forgive us and cleanse us. In other words, we are washed clean. Back to John 13, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. One of his followers was not. And of course, we know that to be Judas. Here is Judas allowing the devil's whispered suggestion to get a a foothold into his imagination. Evil creeps in between the cracks at the very moment when love is going to the limits. I mean, this isn't just some cozy and romantic, um, you know, scene. This scene is about love betrayed, not just love portrayed. And it's striking. Because Judas, by all outward appearances, looked just like everybody else. It's sobering. Because from the outside, it would have been really hard to tell. Judas was the guy who was in charge of the money. He was Jesus' accountant. And he was even at this intimate dinner. And Jesus even washed his feet like the lowliest of servants. And none of that saved Judas. But still, Jesus washed the feet of Judas, knowing full well what he was going to do. Judas is in league with Satan, but Jesus still stoops before him as a humble servant and slowly washes the cake, dirt, and grime off of his feet. I mean, would you have washed Judas' feet? I don't know. I think I would have been tempted to clean his feet with some paint thinner and a match, but not Jesus. He carefully washes the feet of a traitor just as he washed the feet of Peter and James and John. So the question is, why would Jesus wash his feet? Well, I think that Jesus was declaring that he loves even those who will reject him. And he serves them. And I tell you, that really convicted me this week. Right, so there are people, not talking about you, obviously, but there are people that I don't like. Right? And there are people that I find annoying. And again, not you. And, and there are people that hate me. I know it's hard to believe, but... Uh, it comes with the territory when you do what I do. Uh, I, mean, uh, I assure you that there are people who hate me, people who I've never even met. So the people I don't like, there are people who are annoying, and there are people who hate me. And then Jesus says, I want you to love and serve people. And in my brain, what I think is that there, there is got to be a limit to this. I mean, maybe I need to love the people that I don't like and kind of tolerate the people that I find annoying. 
But then there are the people who hate me, like for no reason. I don't have to really like them, right? I don't have to love them and serve them, right? There, there, there's a limit here. There, there's, there's a limit, right? But you know, that's exactly what Jesus' point is here, is that there is no limit. Listen to what he goes on to say. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? Now, now remember what he had just told them. You're not going to understand what I did to you until, I've, until I'm done doing it to you, right? So he's kind of asking a bit of a rhetorical question. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And, and who's the your? The your is his disciples and Judas. The people who would follow him, those who were his own and Judas. The people who would love him and the one who would betray him. He says, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And Jesus doesn't do this very often. A lot of times he just gives some teaching and doesn't apply it for us. This time he actually tells us, this is what I want you to do with this. I am, going, I, I am doing this as an example so that you will do this for others. Now, does Jesus, um, is what he's saying is that we should just all take off our our, our rain boots now and just start lathering up each other's feet? I, I don't think so. Maybe in some context, but I think the call here is really to humble service. The call is to follow Jesus. And following Jesus isn't, isn't a path to human greatness or man's acclaim. Following Jesus means we will, we will, be put, down, you know, we will put down the respect and, and riches of this world and pick up the wet, dirty, stained towel and use it to clean somebody else's muddy feet, as it were. The, the way to follow Jesus is to serve others humbly. And this kind of humble service has to be rooted in the gospel because what Jesus commands is not an action but an attitude. I don't believe foot washing is the point. I know some have taken this as a, as a command to literally wash uh, the feet of others, but foot washing can be done arrogantly. It can be done as an outward show. It can be done from a, with, with a cold, dead, and uncaring heart. And, and, and that's why the focus is on the desire, not the duty. And, and that's why to, to follow Jesus by humbly serving others requires a fundamental transformation of our nature. Because we are by nature selfish. We're independent. We're, we're, we're arrogant sinners with cold, hard hearts. And what Jesus demands from us is to, to, to live as selfless, trusting, humble servants. And, and the only way that that's possible is if who I am fundamentally changes. Unless someone performs heart surgery on me, I can't live this kind of life of humble service. But thankfully, when Jesus humbly sacrificed his life on the cross in my place, absorbing the wrath of God and granting me the gift of faith so that I could turn in repentance, faith, and obedience to him, that changed my nature. That he did give me a new heart. And so now what was impossible, a life of humble service, is not only possible, but it's the path to true 
and lasting joy. Joy, happiness, and blessing come not from a life of selfish accumulation, but from a life of self-denying compassion and service. In other words, I think, in essence, what Jesus is telling his disciples here is this. Listen, my humble service to you on the cross, pictured in this act of foot washing, will enable you and empower you to live as you were intended to. It will change your desires and your goals, your dreams and your wishes. It will change your fundamental makeup. You'll learn that as you follow me, joy and happiness will find you not by standing on the throne issuing edicts and receiving tribute, but blessing. you will find blessing when you find yourself kneeling on the floor, towel in hand. Now listen to what Jesus has to say here in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Don't just know this stuff. Do this stuff. Serve love, even those you find repulsive. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And so all of this is his motivation to his disciples so, so that his disciples will serve and love others, who will serve and love others, who will serve and love others until 2,000 years later, we get the same message from Jesus who says that we are to serve and to love others so that we can tell them about Jesus. Now, a lot of times the way we serve um, is we do it in ways, we serve in ways that make us feel good. Our motivation for serving is how we feel. I don't want to take away from that. It, 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 it is a good feeling to serve another a person. I don't want to take that part away, but that's the, not the motivation. That's not why we do it. We don't serve somebody so we can post it on Facebook, so we can get a lot of likes for it about how great we are. We serve because we represent Jesus who served. We love because we represent Jesus who loved. And few things that we do in this world, make the gospel more beautiful and compelling than when someone sees Christians with dirty towels and clean feet. Dirty towels and clean feet make the gospel clear. Everyday people doing everyday things to serve others. That's what humble service looks like. That's what following Jesus looks like. Now, did you catch that little bit in the middle? The last verse I read, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Who's he talking about? Again, Judas. In fact, he goes on in verse 21. It says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And that's what we're going to pick up with next week. But what's remarkable is that Jesus at this same table will eventually grab a a loaf of bread and he will say this, this is my body given for you. Whenever you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. And And then he takes a cup of wine and he says, this is my blood that is shed for you. 
Every time you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. And then the Apostle Paul later tells us that this bread is not just symbolizing the body of Christ that went to the cross, but it also symbolizes us as the united body of Christ, that we are now together his body. And, it, it, and it's such a, a great picture of, of, of this example that Jesus gave us. He, he was telling his disciples, listen, you are now my body. You are now my representatives. I, I know that my time has come. The, the hour has come for me to go to the cross, to, to, to be sacrificed for the sins of the world, to, to be buried and then to, to rise again on the third day, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And, 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 and then it's going to be your turn to live out as my body in this world. And so we're going to come to the Lord's Supper today. And as we do, remember that this is us as the body proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We're, we're just astonished that we have a God that, that knelt onto his knees and washed the feet of his followers. Uh, we are astonished that we have a God who loves and serves in such a way. We... we we so often want to jockey for position. We want to be liked. We want to avoid the annoying people. We, 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 we don't want to deal with people who hate us. And yet Jesus, who lived a sinless life, was willing to be given as the sacrifice. Man, he had all authority given to him, and he used that authority to march straight to the cross to die for people who hate him. We pray that we would live as examples of that, not so that somehow, that we somehow earn back some kind of, of salvation, not so that we somehow are, are paying him back for what he's done, but so that our lives can be like a giant blinking arrow pointing to the one who saved us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.